Okay. PCA ad interim committee report on human sexuality, part three or four. Here we go. Um, please remember as we're going through these notes, these notes, I did not write these. I simply paraphrased these things, and some of them are straight up quoted um, from, from the report. The report is very helpful. I told you before I did not print it out. Uh, that is now no longer true. I have it here. If you'd like to look at certain pages, I'd be glad to have it divided up, um, color-coded and all that, um, so that it's easy reference. So if you have any questions, we can dive into that as we continue to go through this. Last time, this was two weeks ago, because last week we were together with the Ohio Presbytery, uh, two weeks ago, we were looking at some preliminary challenges to these discussions of sexuality, uh, the issue of um, identity and how the modern world views identity, issues of freedom and power, and how those uh, are uh, interwoven with sexuality in this world. And we concluded that only in a compelling biblical framework of identity, of being in Christ, and of discipleship, of losing oneself in the love and service of God in order to find one's true self, will all of the Christian teaching about the meaning of sex make sense. And the world does not have a frame of reference for sex as a way to be giving. It is Sex is, is constantly sold as something to be taken. And it is, you notice I said the word sold. It is, it is something to be consumed and used for your own um, pleasure and that if we buy that assumption we will not understand biblical sexuality the point of sexuality is self-giving and we talked a little bit about the the greco-roman sexual ethic we're going to return to that at the end of tonight so i'm not going to recap that right now and then we started into a biblical framework according to the report itself. This is under the section uh, called the biblical theology of sex. So this is getting into what does the Bible as a whole say about sexuality and marriage and about the person, like who we are as individuals, not just sex as an action. And so um, I, was, I was talking with another pastor about this and he said, yeah, I, I like the 12 statements um, and I've given you the statement on marriage. And then I they had all those uh, proof texts, those footnotes with all those verses. That's good. I think we need to make sure that we know that we're, what we're saying is biblical. But we also need a robust, full picture, biblically speaking, of what's going on when we talk about sexuality and marriage between being between one man and one woman. And of course, we're not going to hit it in all its fullness. But, but by, I'm going to give you three points today, starting on page 8 there, points A, B, and C. Um, these three points are getting at that biblical theology and overarching framework to which we can then attach our conversation once we start going through the 12 statements and we understand the overarching biblical discussion. Now we can take these specific biblical texts and see how they hang on that framework and then it'll make a lot more sense. So these are three things uh, and how I prefaced this last time was, you know, the church and uh, the church has often told us what our bodies are not for and sex is a don't, don't, don't. We're looking here at how the Bible says sex is a good thing and sex is due for these reasons. And I, uh, I think many of us felt like uh, that was missing in our own training. And, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe we just weren't able to hear it at that point in our lives. Maybe uh, this was well taught and I just missed it. But I, I think it's good for us to, um, to reiterate this and, and to jump into this. So uh, look at the summary section there. 
um, summary of the following three points. Uh, Sex is A, for self-giving, which is only complete if there is a lifelong covenant. Did you notice that? A one-night stand is not actually self-giving. This is a lifelong commitment. This is giving your whole self, all of you. B, sex is for the bridging of difference across the barrier between male and female. And C, sex is for the creation and nurture of life. These explain why sexual intimacy is only to be experienced within marriage between a man and a woman. Point A, this is a review from last time. Uh, I want to point out that marriage and sexuality are to exist together in an exclusive, permanent covenant relationship. Exclusive, permanent covenant relationship with your spouse. That helps us fight this consumerist and transactional understanding of sex. And uh, and it, rather than being mutually uh, self-fulfilling, it is to be mutually self-giving, putting aside your own needs in favor of the needs of the other person and the needs of the relationship as a whole. Right, so, so that's um, a general uh, concept here of how marriage must be within the relationship of an exclusive permanent covenant relationship. Sexuality must be within that marriage relationship. And so spouses give up their independence for interdependence. Now that's about where we stopped last time. Um, Should I, I'll go ahead and pause and ask, are there any questions, preliminary questions before we continue through the next two points? We will slow down a little bit. Um, Thoughts on that? or anything just overarching so far, if you're new to the discussion, any catch-up questions? This is about the sacredness of, of sex. Mm-hmm. That's right. There's a sacredness to it. Yeah. Uh, that, this is about the sacredness of sex. That's absolutely right. I repeated that for the sake of the recording. <laughs> oh, I just thought you really liked it. Yeah, I just, yeah. I did really like it, too. Yes, I did really like it. <laughs> And uh, as we continued conversations last week after the the lesson ended, I realized this is, in some senses, for those who are married, this is marriage counseling. Um, For those who are engaged, this is pre-marriage counseling. And for those who are single, this is pre-pre-marriage counseling. Um, And and I hope hope we can use it that way and and go from this place encouraged and um, built up after these conversations. Um, Point B. As union with Christ is a relationship between deeply different beings, God and humanity, so sexual intimacy is only to be experienced in a union across the deep difference of gender. Now, at first glance, this looks a little bit arbitrary. Really? Okay. You're just saying it's just because God and humanity are different, and therefore it must be between two different genders? Yes, and that's actually what's going on in Ephesians 5. When you look at how Paul is interpreting marriage, specifically, um, excuse me, interpreting Genesis as he talks about marriage. Let's start in Genesis 2.24. The context of Genesis 1 and 2 is hugely important for this because you remember in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And on and on. So God created man in his own image, verse 27. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And you move on to um, chapter 2, verse 27. 
That's not a real thing, is it? 24. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This differentiation is clearly laid out in the context here of Genesis 1 and 2. There is a man and there is a woman, and the man shall leave his father and mother um, and hold fast to his wife. And that also assumes the wife also is leaving her father and mother to hold fast to her husband. They become one flesh. Um, That one flesh... uh, there are differing understandings of what does it mean that they become one flesh. Um, and does that point literally to the creation of, of life and, and then one flesh together? Uh, does it refer to a more um, relational dimension? Um, probably both. Um, but even if you go back to day six of creation, um, it was not good that the man should be alone. And so one gender on its own was not sufficient, and it was actually not good. Um, it was, and it wasn't until God made woman and brought her to Adam that God said it was very good. And, and so this whole context here is talking about having a man and someone who is so different taken from man to be the complement. All right, so you have this context of these two who will become one. Now flip over to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is the famous passage that uh, mentioned this morning in our First Peter sermon, but which we, uh, you, you know famously for being a passage on marriage and the roles of husbands and wives. Paul is giving commands, kind of like the way Peter did, um, to wives in chapter, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 22, husbands in verse 25, children in chapter 6, verse 1, uh, bond servants in chapter 6, verse 5. So specifically applying these, these things to the Christians. And as he's talking to wives and husbands there in verses 31 and 32, he quotes Genesis 2. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Whoa. These two becoming one flesh refers to Christ and the church? What this is saying is that there, this, this distance that existed between man and woman... God bridged with this gift of covenant marriage. This distance that exists between Christ and the church, between deity and humanity, God has bridged with covenant. A covenant marriage that will be between the groom and the bride, the marriage supper of the Lamb on that last day. So marriage then, even in the differentiation between the man and the woman, mirrors that marriage between the divine with humanity. And you see that marriage between the divine and humanity in the person of Jesus himself, who is both 100% God and 100% man. But you also see it in God being with humanity through Jesus um, in that marriage supper on the last day. And in the covenant relationship we even have with him now by the Spirit who dwells in us, in this salvation that we find in Christ. So, let's reread that point, point B. Because um, maybe you were like me and you read it like, that seems a little bit arbitrary. Let's read it again, and I, it hopefully will sound um, 
more comprehensive this time. As union with Christ is a relationship between deeply different beings, God and humanity, so sexual intimacy is only to be experienced in a union across the deep difference of gender. The male-female bond, this is jumping down to that paragraph, third line down, the male-female bond can only serve as an analogy to the Christchurch union if the parties are significantly different. The wonder of union in Christ is that humanity and deity are now united, for the, for, first in Christ himself, then in our union with him through the Spirit. Though there was a divide between both genders upon the fall in Genesis 3, and if we were to go look at that, you would see that there was a specific... Um, drawing a blank on the word, um, conflict, I guess you can say, between the man and the woman. And the curse was that her desire would be um, for him, some translations say, to overtake him. So that, um, that tension that exists there, that conflict that existed there between the two genders, marriage is actually able to preserve that union between um, man and woman, despite the curse of the fall, uh, male and female provide the ultimate unity and diversity. Now, the report goes into more detail and says, well, you know, our culture celebrates this kind of diversity and that kind of diversity, but do we celebrate the diversity of man and woman coming together in marriage and how beautiful that diversity and union is? And that's a point that uh, they make as well. That's, um, yeah, I'll go ahead and stop with that on that point. And then uh, the last point here, and this one is going to potentially stir up some conversation if, um, if we haven't already, when I pause for comments, each man and woman uh, has excellencies and glories, perspectives and powers that the other gender does not have and cannot reproduce. So when you have a, mar a marriage between a man and a woman, it has these gifts of reflecting God's character and God's, um, the gifts that God has given them in ways that one gender cannot reflect. And so a household is, uh, has a fuller reflection of the image of God when you have both male and female present and filling, fulfilling their roles in submission to Christ. Okay, I'm going to pause there. Thoughts on that, applications to that, uh, of that. Um, pushback questions. Let's go. I think um, it gives or it takes the legs right underneath, uh, out from underneath the argument of like the grammatical arguments for homosexuality in the Bible. Of like, this isn't a grammatical like error, it's a structural piece of the entire Bible. Like, yeah, it's, I think it's really cool. I haven't thought about it in that way, and I've always tried to argue like the grammar in that, and like the what the Bible says, and I still think that that argument stands strong, mm -hmm. but even if you look at the overarching structure of what like Christ and the church is, and man and woman are supposed to be, mm -hmm. um, gives that that argument so much more like credence. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely. And then once you do go look at these specific Pauline verses or Levitical verses, that people use to proof text that many people will try to undermine on grammatical grounds or historical grounds. Um, those verses now simply serve to support a greater point that's already there yeah. uh, rather than being the only supports for the argument. And, and I, so you're right, it creates a fuller, more robust argument for biblical heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I'm just noticing something here and I don't, I don't know. Um, 
So it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. All right. Is there something to Jesus leaving the Father, mm. right, and proceeding, mm. condescending himself to come to earth in the form of flesh, holy God, holy man, and and taking the church as his bride, right? There's a unity there. There's a union. Talks about the union of Christ, and it analogizes analogizes the marriage relationship to that kind of unity, right? I mean, it, it, it seems like there's some parallels there that if we use our imaginations a little bit, which we're encouraged to do, it seems like there's some parallels there that are useful. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, the Jesus leaving the Father is, is equivalent to a man leaving his wife. Right, 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 right. Wife. Right. <laughs> well, the goal of being united to the wife, which is the second half of that phrase. Are you in Ephesians or Genesis right now? I'm in Ephesians. Yeah, I mean, 32 is gives us the answer. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right. That's why I'm... Yeah. That's why I'm... Um, I just have never... I don't know if there's something to that, but I, it seems like there's a there's a sacrifice that's being done, right? I mean, if you read Philippians two, and just how it, it, he's basically trading heaven's throne for the cross, mm-hmm. I and mean, that's what Christ did. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. quote a Stephen Curtis Chapman song, mm-hmm. and it it seems like it's that same kind of sacrificial love that is demanded mm-hmm. of the. The husband, husband and wife, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. certainly the husband and the wife as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly it's sacrificial love, and that's that's the picture that's that's given there. And I just seems like there's something to it. Yeah, yeah. In a spiritual sense, it, there's absolutely a point to be made there because if you even go back to chapter five, verse twenty-three, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Um, that, that parallel between husband and wives is, is clearly drawn. So there's something there. And is Jesus leaving his father in the same way that husband leaves his father and mother? I don't know. I don't think so. There's, there's far more, of course, too. Um, C- certainly, there's far more, too. It's just maybe there is. It's something to, yeah. to, to think about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and, and that's, I think, part of why... Um, I mean, this, these are hard concepts because what we're doing is taking something that is very fleshly and it is being used as an analogy for something that is spiritual and eternal. And so it's hard to draw a one-to-one correlation on all these things, but there still is obviously a reflection that's going on. But it says, I mean, it says it's a mystery. Yeah, right, right. If you look at Proverbs one, it talks about how there are riddles, like scripture is full of riddles and, and intricacies and things that need to be unfolded and, and have your imagination. It talks about having, you know, meditating on scripture day and night. It's because you don't get it on the first read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Yeah. It's, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. No, that's good. Other comments, questions?
Could you illustrate excellencies, glories, and powers? Yes, sir. They are definitely superlatives. Um, here is... Christians believe that God, this this is page 42, you don't have the report in front of you. Um, Christians believe God distributed unique abilities, perspectives, and other gifts across the two genders. We do not believe that men can reproduce all the gifts women have, nor that women can reproduce what men have. We believe a marriage between persons of the same gender fails to practice the gender diversity that we wish to see in other areas of life. We believe that the union of male and female in marriage reflects the union of God and humanity through Christ. So to take that concept of the um, unique giftings for man and women and to apply it to these phrases here, um, excellencies and glories, perspectives and powers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I probably mistyped that. It's probably supposed to say excellences is probably correct. Um yeah, it says excellences, not excellencies. So, um, yeah, I, I, I said it wrong earlier. Um, each has excellences and glory. So, um, I don't want to misspeak on this one, but even our passage this morning in First Peter spoke to some of the excellences of uh, the wife's role and the husband's role within the marriage. The... And we could get into the husband's role as spiritual head of the household, and, and that is an excellent calling and a high calling and um, glorious calling. Now, if there's more meant by glories, um, I'd have to I'd, I'll have to do some further researching into that to see if there is. Um, but even the perspectives and powers, you know, there are stereotypical characteristics of genders, you know, women nurturing, men protecting, you know, those are, um, of course, not, now I'm not, I'm not trying to just, you know, be politically correct here, but that is not always true across the board. There are some men who are very nurturing and there are some women who are very um, protective and men and women have both qualities, but there seems to be an emphasis on one or the other in various, um, various people. And so I would say, um, That's only getting at it. I'm not now. Now that I look at the words and think about what your real question is, I'm not answering your question. So, would a power, for example, be women bear children and men don't, or is that just is that not in your those three words? It's a great question. I, now. As I understand it, absolutely. But I'm trying to figure out if that's what is what they're meaning by this. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I am coming up short on that right now. Why do you always ask the hard questions? <laughs> no, this is wonderful. I this is good. I I want to be able to find good answers here. I just want to be able to tell Brenda when I go home, which is these excellent things I bring to it. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the parallel that they draw um, there are two two comments here um, it's 
Um, so since homosex- homosexuality was in view with the, the writing of this report, um, here's one parallel drawn to that. Homosexuality does not honor the need for this rich diversity of perspective and gendered humanity in sexual relationships. So in sexual terms, there are quite clearly different excellences and powers um, for man and then uh, versus for woman. And then another parallel that's drawn here is um, they, they use that same sentence I just put in there. Uh, male and female each have excellencies. Okay, I mistyped it. It is excellencies and glories, perspectives and powers that the other gender does not have and cannot reproduce. As you could not have an entirely male or female society or church without impoverishment, neither can you have such a marriage. So I think it's speaking of relational and social capacities as well as uh, sexual and uh, perhaps, I, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say spiritual, but um, in terms of spiritual roles. You can, you can yeah. go there with spiritual also because yeah. um, we live in this humanist society that I can do it all. Yeah. And I don't need yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. a spouse, I don't need another half to compliment me or to get the work done. Right. And uh, so I think that just buys into. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't need God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can earn my way. Right. Yeah. There, there was. This was out about ten years ago. This is a really interesting medical study about forty years ago. Women's heart disease, um, stroke um, levels were way down here, and men's were up here. And and over the last forty years, they all increased, where they are all almost even now. Women and men suffer stroke and, and hypertension and, and those kinds of diseases to almost the same extent now because females have assumed all of that, I could do it all myself mm-hmm. attitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so many. Sure, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yes? Uh, yeah, good question. Uh, what does this have to do with the call to a life of singleness? Um, I think I, I think you're right. This does not speak to that. Go, yeah. yeah. I don't think that speaks to it, but I think that... Uh, was that in Tim Keller's book? It was. Where he, talk, where he talks about um, the need of... If you're called to singleness, the need for a community of singles who are like-minded, that are different genders, so that you can like have that have the other perspective as well. Um, and I think that even supports it as well. It's just like even when you're like, if you're a guy living a life of singleness, called a life of singleness, you still need perspectives of women in your life because they bring such a different. Um, Viewpoint on so many different things, right? And, and the opposite is true. So that's that was to me. Yeah, that was the one. Okay, cool. Yeah. There is um, a whole section here. It's uh, two and a half pages long on singleness, friendship, and community. Um, if you want to look it up, it's on pages 31 through 33 of the report. Um, if that is not, I believe it is one of the 12 statements. If it's not, uh, then then we need to go ahead and add that as one. I'm going to look through here really quickly. 
Yeah, their statement 11 is on friendship, and we'll hopefully get to that at that point. Because you're right, we, we can't be neglecting that many are legitimately called to singleness. Christ was. Now, are we saying that they are less people? Uh, not, at, not at all. So, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Okay, let's look at the third point. As union with Christ brings new life into the world, so God has bestowed only on male-female marriage both the ability to create new human life and the best resources to nourish that life. Uh, Let's go ahead and just keep reading. God commanded humankind to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, Genesis 1. Only the male-female union can do this. Marriage forms a deep unity between male and female with life-giving power. To separate sex and or marriage from procreation is to damage God's design, command, and blessing. And then uh, one more quote here. This is uh, more relating to the nourishment aspect of marriage. Um, This is uh, a Christian author and ethicist. He he writes, um, a second given of creation a given of creation. So there are two things he said. A work was good, and the second given of creation is family, understood biblically as the relationship stemming from the marriage of a man and a woman. Marriage and family are the means by which humans are socialized and hopefully nurtured in the faith. Uh, So when you think about how children are raised, it's in a family. The nurture aspect is hugely important to how, how you understand how you view the world, how you understand faith. And, and as covenant, as a covenant people, we understand that, especially as people who are conscious of covenant theology, we realize how important that is that we raise children in a place where they are going to be nurtured in the faith and see the faith lived out and, and learn what it means to, to hear the gospel and to come to God Um, to taste and see that he is good every week, even when you don't feel like you deserve it, and to be around other mentors in the church. And so um, a little plug here for the sake of the life of our church, find some families in the church that you think need some help with the kids and say, hey, we want to help you. We want to invest. We want to um, figure out, can we uh, watch your kids one night uh, so you can have a date night? Can we help? um, Can we go play pickleball? you know, with, with your kids. Um, I, I know having been on the teacher end of things at CVCA, I, there were very few times that my investment in the life of a student was met with neutrality. It was always gratitude. People were always grateful for, thank you for pouring into my kids. Thank you for investing, for caring. Uh, let's be that kind of church that cares because we realize, um, we understand the importance of nurturing children in the faith. All right, that's, that's the side, the rabbit trail. Let's get back on the, on the main course here. Um, marriage is how God has primarily designed children to be raised and nourished in the faith. Now, some of us are going to, some people are going to accuse us of sounding very Catholic or accuse me of sounding very Catholic. I'm not going to throw you in this boat yet. Um, I think it's important that we understand that sexuality is connected to procreation. When we separate it from that, we're missing the fact that sexuality is designed by God to give life. We miss the fact that the union between a man and a woman, which mirrors the union between Christ and his church, this is for the purpose of new life. 
And it, we are commanded as man and woman to fill the earth, be fruitful and increase. And how do you do that? Except by sexuality, by um, this, this union that God has given, uh, male and female union. Now, some people say, well, sure. I mean, you have a homosexual couple. All they have to do is go to the lab and then they can have you know, a kid. Like, well, they're still having to go to the lab because you need the male and female um, for this to be um, life-giving. Um, so I'm going to pause there. I'm ready for pushback and questions on this one. Just to further your last point, even if you go to the lab, only half of that couple is actually being reproduced. I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it'll look like that person, or maybe it'll look like me. Mm-hmm. But and it's that whole like trade-off. Well, whose kid is this actually? Yeah. So again, just furthers the genetically the logical it's nature. Yours or not yours. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think even if we take the narrative out of the homosexual context, I think our culture already recognizes the dramatic absence of fathers and the father's influence in the home. And when mothers are raising children by themselves without a father's influence in the home, it's bad. I mean, the statistics of a single parent household are really, really bad. And it's not so much, oh, it's only one parent, it's the absence of the other gender of those things that they bring, the authority that a father naturally brings to the household, or whatever it may be. Um, you know, we can go on either side of it, mm-hmm. but I think any teacher in America would tell you, my mom talks all the time how my brother got stuck in the classroom with all the fatherless boys in his grade, and it was a disaster because they put all these boys with the one male teacher because they thought they need male influence, and my brother was in that class, and it was... It was an experiment, but it was a really bad one because um, the problems just multiplied. So anyway, it just I keep thinking of these examples of how our culture recognizes this. They fully admit it in other arenas that the absence of a father in home is really, I mean, uh, ask anyone who's incarcerated. I bet a lot of them will say, I grew up with my dad. I agree with everything you just said. Except, I don't think our culture, I think our culture trades on, they would rather have the freedom, so-called freedom, Mm -hmm. to um, personal autonomy is the highest value. Mm -hmm. So that that fuels the abortion, it fuels the, um, you know, sleeping with whoever you want. Uh, it's all about me. It's a, it's a, it's an inward-looking um, worldview, mm-hmm. as opposed to this, which is outward-looking. Right? When you you look at marriage and then and then children, what what greater lessons have we learned through being married to somebody else and raising children 
um, you you have to learn to become less selfish. <laughs> I mean, it's just pushing you in that direction because you've got a child that's so needy all the time, mm -hmm. and 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 that that has benefits out not only inside the family but it has benefits outside the family for the neighborhood and the community and the state and the country but we have in exchange for we, we've made a devil's bargain right mm -hmm. so that we can have personal autonomy I can sleep with whoever I want and there's no repercussions I can I can it, it's a lie it's a devil's lie because I I have gone into prisons and 80% of those uh, young men are fatherless or more. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just, it's eroding the West, certainly, and certainly our country. Yeah. So if you think about a high school football team after practice at 5.30 p.m., and you have two boxes of pizza sitting out open, it's going to be gone immediately. I mean, two pizzas wouldn't even begin. Um, if you think about the home and sexuality and these relationships, as a high school football boy thinks about pizza, I know it's a crass example, but it, you go to take. You just take and take and get, eat your fill, get what you can get. It becomes a wasteland. But for those who have seen a place of self-giving, where the home is a place where the father and the mother give and give and give perfectly, no, right? We're, we're still on that journey together. Where they give and give and give, it becomes a place of life, not just for that family, but for the friends and for the neighbors and for the people in the church. And people notice and they ask questions. And they want to know what's going on. And it's these people who are living as God has commanded them to give and give. These people who said no to their own desires and said yes to the good of others. And so I think this is a great opportunity for us to pause for a minute because one of the requests I've gotten as we go through this is to think how can we pastorally talk about these things is to think when we see these fatherless kids, when we see these motherless kids, what do we do? Do we put a, a red letter on them? Or do we give of ourselves for them and love them and welcome them into this place of blessing? And, and I think that's um, a rich way that we as a church can try to uh, love those who have not been loved but have been taken advantage of when they thought they were going to be loved. So that's just a pastoral application, I think, to these, these realities. Because these people are not getting the richness of what God has designed for them to get. And so we can um, hopefully be those who care enough to step out when it's challenging and when it's not comfortable and give and love and support them. It's so easy to say, oh, you've been through this and that. Well, you know, there must be something wrong with you. That is not what they need. That's the last thing they need in a moment like that. Other thoughts? <clears throat> I think this fatherless thing also ripples through generations. Because mm -hmm. when my dad was 13, his dad died in an accident. So from 13 on, he was fatherless. And I think some of those stages, what do you do in the 20s, what do you do in the 30s, 
he didn't have any idea mm -hmm. and so some of the unknowingness <coughs> passed along <coughs> generations and we didn't even know it we didn't know what was missing mm -hmm. um, so I I wonder if for those who never had that if it's a generational thing that, that it'll their own kids will have the same sort of void you know? mm -hmm. there's something about that I haven't even figured it out yet but speaking from experience um, the church fills so much uh, the Lord provides so many people that can speak and fill those gaps and it's it's such a blessing um, and so I think like like what we're saying is when we see those people who are fatherless or motherless or whatever like us being the church is filling the void that was left like the reason I'm here in this church is because Jacob and other people in my life filled the void that was left right and and have provided that father figure that's been able to carry me through and nurture and give me what I've needed to grow and mature as a man in Christ. And so, um, if you're not in the church though, you don't receive that blessing. Yeah. And that's the, that's the sad part, right? Of you don't receive that blessing when you're not in the community of the church. Mm -hmm. um, and so then these, these boys will latch on to some other male figure. Yeah. And, and it'll be one of the, yeah, whole nother set of values. Yeah, so that shows the importance. Um, and and it's it's hard because we can sit back and see so many things going on. And realize we don't have the manpower. If we all quit our jobs and gave twenty four hours a day to helping the world around us, we couldn't do it. We would not have enough manpower. Um, so where do we start? It's about being faithful in our household. It's about loving. about loving the ones closest to you who know you the most who you know the most who are the most unlovable when you are the most unlovable and then when you love those closest to you the lord provides that next step of, of who do you care for next is that neighbor who needs a male figure it's it's those those kids down the street and you say all right we're gonna we're gonna do a breakfast for them and, and we're gonna give them a place where they feel welcome and it's um yeah it's an, you don't have to go feel like you're helpless in this don't feel like you, it's just so big you can't conquer it be faithful with what god puts in front of you start close and god provides those next steps outward and biblical sexuality is an important place to start. That's the foundation for this uh, this relationship of giving and giving and giving to one another. I was just thinking about the girls, too. girls who are being raised without that healthy male figure. Yeah, are susceptible to all kinds of yeah. ugly. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think you're right. We are in our homes, and then whoever God brings to us, we can't. It's that whole the little girl throwing the jellyfish back in the ocean. I can't rescue all of them when I can make a difference for that one. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, we have once again gotten through the notes. <clears throat> That's a good thing. We will do pages 10 and 11. Um, it really is more of a recap, so we'll treat it as a recap as we get back into the statements next time. We'll, we will return to statement one on marriage.
Is that great? We started with statement one, and now a month later, we're going back to statement one. Um, Let's pray. Lord, would you strengthen us as we go from here uh, to be those who uh, love well, who see how you have loved your people, see how Christ has loved his church, given himself up for her. Would we see that our roles that reflect your image and your character are uh, honorable roles with great dignity and great purpose and great value? Would we not desire the roles of the other, but be grateful to be where you have put us? We pray that we would uh, be those who love well, who give of ourselves when we don't feel like we have anything left to give. Uh, As we see how much Christ has done for us, would that be our strength? Thank you for this gathering. Thank you for this sweet fellowship and these times that we get to share. And we pray that they would continue to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.